Hello and welcome to Elite Dharma Shades of Murder, a podcast where I will share and discuss tales of true crime, mysteries, and all things dark and macabre. If you eat plain dream and shades of murder like me, then welcome, my kindred spirits, to your new podcast home. If you enjoy this show, please remember to follow, rate, share, and subscribe so I can present more stories to you and we can all embrace the allure of the darkness together. All of my social media and contact information you can find in the episode description below. Please be forewarned that each episode contains specific and at times very graphic and disturbing details of the case and may not be intended for all audiences. This case was important to me to share and discuss with you for several reasons. Although I am native to the West Coast and have lived most of my life in California and Arizona, I now call the beautiful state of North Carolina my home. Charlotte is the largest city in the state, which is about a three-hour drive from where I reside, but it still feels close enough to feel a connection to the area and its tragedies. This case is a tragic example of how marginalized groups of people, in this case being young African-American women, are not prioritized in protecting, much less is law enforcement given the resources to solve cases of missing, raped, and murdered women. Also, in the true crime world, where serial killers like Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, and the like are always placed in the spotlight, it is important to me, and I find way more compelling to learn about, the cases and better understand the perpetrator profiles of serial killers who are less common household names. I also wanted to cover this case because there is an abundance of accurate details provided by the Appellate Court case. For a criminal law nerd like me, well, it doesn't get any sweeter than finding real court cases to read and gather information from for a story. This is the case of the Taco Bell Strangler of Charlotte, Henry Louise Wallace. 1993 marked the bloodiest year in Charlotte, North Carolina history, with a record 129 murders. The ever-rising siege that was the crack cocaine epidemic flooded the most impoverished neighborhoods with violence and chaos. The criminal justice system's assault on the African-American communities through its gross disparity of sentencing for crack cocaine had disrupted and shattered countless families. For those of you who are not familiar with this law, the sentence held for the conviction of crack cocaine versus powder cocaine is extremely disproportionate. Under the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, the law made it so that an individual would face the same penalty for the possession of 5 grams of crack cocaine that someone who possessed 500 grams of powder cocaine would. Under the 100 to 1 ratio sentence, a person with a tiny amount of personal crack cocaine use could spend a minimum of 5 years in prison for the offense. However, Someone trafficking powder cocaine could have 100 times this amount and face the same penalty. Given the notable demographic differences between a typical crack cocaine user versus a cocaine user, based on the huge difference one narcotic over the other costs, this statute wrecked absolute havoc upon the lower economic minority classes, with many of their residents getting caught with a rock and ending up sometimes doing 20 years for personal drug use, this left a gaping hole in their communities. Law enforcement was bombarded with handling drug busts and the escalating rise of violent crimes in these neighborhoods. They were spread thin, overworked, bitter, and tainted by what they were witnessing unfold. There were also ever-escalating racial tensions amongst police and residents. Mainly due to political and public pressure, priority over missing and murdered individuals from more affluent areas took precedence over what happened in the ghettos and in the struggling working minority classes. A veil of darkness loomed over the city with a friendly monster hiding in plain sight who would murder nine young women in this neglected and ignored urban existence. The following details of each crime were taken from the Appellate Court case State v. Wallace, 2000 North Carolina Supreme Court, and based on the recorded confessions of Henry Louise Wallace. Murder 1. Caroline Love. Henry's own love, the mother of his beautiful little girl, lived in an apartment with a young girl named Caroline Love. On June 15, 1992, 
Caroline had just finished her evening shift at a Bojangles restaurant. For those of you who are not familiar, Bojangles is a very popular Popeyes or KFC type fast food restaurant chain in the South. They are known for their delicious fried chicken, biscuit sandwiches, and hush puppies. I have become quite familiar with Bojangles living in North Carolina now, but I digress. As Carolina Love needed to do some laundry after work, she asked the night manager if she could exchange a roll of quarters for $10. While walking back to her apartment, her cousin, Robert Ross, drove by and offered her a ride home, which she accepted. He later told the police he saw Caroline safely enter her apartment before driving away. A few days went by, and Caroline Love failed to show up for work, which was not her style. Her boss at Bojangles reached out to her sister Kathy to let her know, and Kathy left a note on her sister's apartment door. The following day, she received another call that her sister Caroline did not show up again for her shift. Ironically, Kathy reached out to Henry Louise Wallace, whom she knew, to ask him to find Sadie McKnight, who was her sister's roommate, and ask her if she knew where her sister was. Henry and his girlfriend Sadie, along with the missing girl's sister Kathy, filed a missing persons report at the local police station. Afterwards, Kathy entered her sister's apartment. She saw that some of the furniture had been disrupted and that her bed sheets were gone. Later, it was determined that the roll of laundry quarters was also missing. There was no sign or evidence of Caroline Love and where she had gone. Henry Louise Wallace confessed the following sequence of events took place that night. He had made a copy of their house key from his girlfriend's key and entered the apartment when no one was home. Suddenly, Henry heard Caroline enter. He called out to her that he was using the restroom and he would leave as soon as he was done. Upon entering the living room, Henry saw Caroline love watching TV and went over to her, kissing her on the cheek. Caroline was upset by this, but said she would not tell his girlfriend Sadie as long as he promised to never kiss her again. This upset Henry, triggering some kind of rage inside of him, and he put Caroline Love into a wrestling-like chokehold. She scratched at Henry's face and arms while he held her tight until she blacked out. He then moved her to the bedroom, unclothed her, took the cord of a curling iron to bind her hands behind her back with, and covered her mouth with tape. Henry proceeded to have sex, orally and vaginally, with Caroline while she slipped in and out of consciousness. As Caroline began to gain consciousness, Wallace used the chokehold on her again, and this time he did not let up until her body went limp. Feeling her heartbeat still, Henry strangled Caroline until she died. He abruptly left the apartment and moved his vehicle to a closer point to the stairwell in order to transport her body with minimal effort. Wrapping Caroline's body inside her own bedsheet, he placed her inside a large orange trash bag. He carried the bag, along with the decoy bag, in the attempt of a ruse to indicate she had left on her own accord, and which he stuffed some of her personal clothes inside. He dumped the bag, along with Love's body inside, into the woods. Concerned that the orange trash bag was too visible from the road, he later returned to remove her body from the bag and moved it into a shallow ravine. Murder 2, Shauna Hawk Shauna Hawk was an ambitious and hard-working young woman who lived with her mother while she studied to be a paralegal at a local community college, all while pulling shifts at a Taco Bell. Unfortunately for Shauna, her path would meet that of Wallace's, who was her manager at the fast food restaurant. On February 19, 1993, Shauna's mom returned home to prepare dinner for them when she noticed that her daughter was not there. She became alarmed when she saw her coat and purse were still hung up in the closet. Her motherly instincts were strong, and she knew something was off since it was too cold of a winter's night in Charlotte to go out without an extra layer on, and she never went anywhere without her purse. She called Shauna's boyfriend, Daryl Kirkpatrick, to inquire as to if he knew where she was, but he did not. Shauna's mother became even more concerned when she was informed that Shauna never picked up her godson from daycare. She rummaged through her daughter's purse and noticed her keys were gone and there was money missing. When Daryl arrived, they called the police to report Shauna missing. Daryl did a careful walkthrough of the apartment and suddenly saw that the shower curtain had been pulled outside of the tub. To his horror, as Daryl pulled the curtain back, 
he saw his girlfriend submerged in water, her body all curled up. Sadly, emergency services could not save the young woman's life, and upon the ride to the hospital, she died. Henry Louise Wallace later told of how he had visited Shauna that day, and they had chatted for a while. As he was leaving, Shauna hugged him. He then told her that he wanted to have sex with her. According to Wallace, he took her into her bedroom, instructed her to take her clothes off, and to perform fellatio on him, which she did, and he then reciprocated oral sex on her. According to Wallace, he and Shauna had mutual sexual intercourse, but he expressed how she was scared and cried the entire time. Afterwards, Henry told her to dress and led her into the bathroom. Without warning, Henry shoved Shauna's head between his arms, placing her in a chokehold until she lost consciousness. He then filled the tub with water and laid Shauna's body inside. However, Dr. Sullivan, who performed the autopsy, noted that there was physical evidence indicative of ligature strangulation. A ligature, for those of you who are not familiar with the term, is a tool such as a cord or a band or some other kind of material or instrument that can be made into a band or a cord, which is placed around the neck and then is utilized to compress the neck with force. Murder 3. Audrey Spain 24-year-old Audrey Spain was another innocent young woman whose path would cross with Henry Louis Wallace. On June 23, 1993, Audrey never showed up for her shift at a Taco Bell in Charlotte, which alarmed her manager, Mark Lawrence, since Audrey was known to be a very reliable employee. Very concerned, he decided to drive over to her apartment that same evening, where he noticed her vehicle in the parking lot. He did not go to her apartment, but rather he left a message on her phone. The following morning, Mark Lawrence drove by her apartment again and saw her vehicle was still there. This time, he called Audrey's sister to convey his concern, but she never picked up nor returned his call. So when Audrey failed to show up for her shift that evening, he decided to call 911. The police rode by her apartment a few times and even knocked on her door, but no one ever answered. Two days after Audrey's initial disappearance, on June 25th, maintenance from her apartment complex went through a sliding glass door to find her dead body upon her bed. Audrey's manager, Mark Lawrence, stopped over that same day. Officers informed him that Audrey was deceased. The following day, the same doctor who had performed Shauna's autopsy removed a crafted ligature of a t-shirt and a bra that had been forcibly wrapped around the woman's neck with the end of the shirt shoved into her mouth. Once the binding was removed, just as before, he saw that there was a mark left by the force of the ligature. There was hemorrhaging in the lining of her eyes, the skin of her face, inside her voice box, and in the muscles within the front area of her neck. There was no doubt that the young woman's cause of death was from strangulation. Henry Louise Wallace would later reveal that he and Audrey had gotten high together that night, but his primary motive for being there was to rob her. He admitted to having placed Audrey in a chokehold and demanded the combination for the safe at the Taco Bell where she worked, but she claimed to not know the numbers. Wallace also inquired about her own personal bank account, but she told him that she was broke since she had just returned from vacation. Although Audrey begged for him to not hurt her. Henry kept her in the chokehold until she lost consciousness. He then dragged her body into the bedroom and raped her. After he sexually assaulted her, he forced her body into the shower and washed off any evidence he may have left behind. Henry then laid Audrey into her bed and tied the t-shirt and bra contraption he had made around her neck. Before fleeing the scene, he took her car keys and credit card which he used to buy gas. To thwart belief as to what day she had actually died, Henry returned to her apartment and made phone calls from her home. Murder 4. Valencia Jumper Valencia Jumper was another young woman with big dreams and the motivation to reach them. A political science student in her senior year at Johnson C. Smith University in Charlotte, she also found a way to balance working two jobs. She worked part-time at a food line, which is a very popular grocery store chain in the South, similar to a Safeway, and another part-time job at Hex, which was later rebranded as Macy's at South Park Mall. 
all of her aspirations would come to a screeching halt on August 9, 1993, when she would face Henry Louise Wallace. Earlier that day, a friend of hers, Zachary Douglas, had asked if she wanted to meet up later that night. Zachary, however, did not show up until the very early morning of August 10th. When he arrived, he saw smoke bellowing out from Valencia's apartment door. He immediately turned the door to find it unlocked and rushed inside. The room was filled with too much smoke for him to go any further, so he knocked on her neighbor's door and asked someone to call the fire department. Upon entry, a firefighter saw that one of the burners on the stove had been left on. Based on analysis of the fire scene, including the noted pattern of the fire's direction, it was believed that the fire began from a pot that had been left on the stove. Valencia Jumper's burned body would soon be found lying in her bedroom. Initially, it was believed to have been a terrible accident, but the autopsy would show otherwise. Dr. Sullivan, the same forensic pathologist who had conducted the autopsy on the two previous victims, would perform Valencia's as well. He immediately noticed that there was no soot present in her airway, which proved there was not a significant level of smoke inhalation. Dr. Sullivan would list the cause of death to be thermal burns since there was no presence of carbon monoxide in her blood. After Wallace's confession, the cause of death would later be changed to strangulation. When Henry confessed to Valencia Jumper's murder, he shared how she had been like a little sister to him and that they had spent a lot of time together. The night he killed her, they had been hanging out while chatting in her apartment, and Wallace initially left. He decided to return to ask her to call his girlfriend Sadie, whom he claimed he had just gotten into a fight with. When Valencia went to grab the phone, he pounced on her, placing her in a chokehold. He then forced her to go to the bedroom and demanded that she take off her clothes. Valencia swore that she would do whatever he wanted, but just to please not hurt her. They had oral sex and vaginal intercourse, and afterwards, while she was pulling her clothes back on, Henry ambushed her, wrapping a towel forcibly around her neck. He choked her until Valencia passed out on the floor. She was bleeding from her nose. So Wallace applied even more force around her neck with the towel for another five minutes until he did not feel her breathing any longer. He then very methodically walked around Valencia's apartment and cleaned his fingerprints off all the areas where he had been. While in the kitchen, he spotted a bottle of rum, which he poured all over Valencia's body, all over the bed, and onto the floor. Returning to the kitchen, he opened up a can of beans, poured them inside a pot, and turned the stovetop's burner on high. He removed the battery from the smoke detector, lit a match in the bedroom, and threw it onto Valencia. Before leaving, he stole jewelry off her dead body. Twenty minutes after leaving the crime scene, he returned to witness smoke coming from under her apartment door. So he promptly left and went home. Murder 5. Michelle Stenson Michelle Stenson was only 20 years old and had two young boys when on September 15, 1993, she would become another victim of the Taco Bell Strangler. That night, a friend of hers, James Mays, had come by her apartment to spend some time with her and her sons, but no one ever answered the door. Suddenly, he heard the kids knocking on the window, telling him that Mom was sleeping on the kitchen floor. At first, he thought they were just being silly and playing games with him, but Michelle never answered when he called out to her. He was about to leave when the oldest boy suddenly appeared from the back door and grabbed him. Picking up the child, he entered the apartment. There he saw his friend Michelle, with blood all around her, lying dead on the kitchen floor. When he picked up the phone to call 911, Mays noticed that the cord had been pulled out or even cut from the wall. He fled the apartment with both young boys and knocked on a neighbor's door to call the police. This time, when Dr. Sullivan performed the autopsy, the modus operandi of the offender had changed. The young woman had been stabbed four times on the left side of her back. Two of the stab wounds had caused injuries to her heart and lungs, which could have been potentially fatal on their own. Dr. Sullivan also observed evidence of ligature strangulation in the form of a band of abrasions and contusions over the front of the neck and small hemorrhages in the skin of the face and the conjunctiva, which is the mucous membrane which covers the front of the eye and lines the inner part of the eyelid 
as well as internally in the muscles of Michelle Stenson's neck. It was concluded that Michelle's cause of death had been stab wounds to the chest in addition to strangulation. The modus operandi and the maliciousness of Henry Louise Wallace had escalated. In his confession, he admitted that he intentionally went to Michelle's apartment to rape and murder her. Now, this is the first time that Henry Louise Wallace had been so honest and transparent about his motives, perhaps even to himself. Henry arrived late at her apartment around 11 p.m. that night, and after he and Michelle spent some time casually chatting with one another, she hugged him goodbye. Wallace told her that he wanted to have sex with her and instructed her to take off her clothes. Michelle resisted, expressing to Henry how she was sick, but Wallace demanded she show some proof of medication that she was ill, which she did not have. He then began to choke her. Michelle agreed to have sex with Wallace to make him to stop. He told her to perform oral sex on him, which she reluctantly did, claiming that she did not know how. Wallace told her that she was about to learn how. They then had sex on the floor of the kitchen. Afterwards, Henry Louise Wallace, using his now known to be signature move, the Boston choke, placed her in a chokehold until she was unconscious. He grabbed a towel from the bathroom, twisted it around her neck, and strangled her with it. When she struggled to breathe and fight for her life, he stabbed her four times with a knife. Wallace was fully aware of the evidence he had left in her apartment, so he methodically removed his fingerprints with a washcloth from a glass, the door, the wall, the floor, and the phone. However, this time, there was a witness at the scene. Her eldest son had awakened. Wallace ushered him to return to bed, which thankfully he did. Henry left through the back door, holding a towel around the doorknob to prevent his fingerprints from being left behind. He disposed of the weapon and the towel by tossing them over a fence at the back end of her apartment. Murder 6. Vanessa Mack Vanessa Mack was a young mother of two little girls, working at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, when her destiny would sadly become intertwined with that of Henry Louise Wallace's. On February 20th, 1994, Barbara Rippey, the grandma to her oldest daughter, arrived at the apartment at 6 a.m. to pick her up, as this was their routine every Sunday, so that Vanessa could go to work. Upon entry, she saw that the four-month-old baby was lying alone on the couch, which she found strange, and when she called for Vanessa... There was no response. When she went into her bedroom, Barbara Rippey noticed Vanessa's feet hanging off the side of the bed. Only her feet were exposed, but they looked gray and felt cold to the touch. When Officer Jeffrey Baumgarner of the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department discovered Vanessa dead upon the bed, he noticed a towel had been wrapped around her neck and that she was bleeding from her nose, ears, and at the back of her head. There was also a pocketbook with various items scattered across her bed. On February 21, 1994, Dr. Sullivan once more found evidence of strangulation and observation of blunt force trauma. The victim's neck had been strangled with a ligature concocted of a long sleeve pullover top and a towel. Another young woman's life had been taken by Charlotte's serial strangler. When Henry Louise Wallace confessed to these events, he admitted that his motivation was driven by robbery to get money for his addiction to cocaine and that he had planned to kill her. Wallace, as he did so many times before, had attempted to hug his victim prior to administering his infamous chokehold, but apparently Vanessa was not interested in hugging him. So when she turned her back to honor his frequent request for a drink, he pulled out a pillowcase he had brought with him and wrapped it tightly around her neck. When Vanessa resisted, he placed more pressure around her neck and told her that she was being robbed. He pulled her into her bedroom and demanded that she hand over all of her money, including her ATM card, along with the pen. Henry Louise Wallace then forced her to take off her clothes and have sex with him. As we have heard from this perpetrator before, he told her to get dressed, and when she did, he tightened the pillowcase again around her neck, this time adding an additional piece of clothing to squeeze it even tighter until she stopped breathing. Wallace went into the baby's room who had awakened and waited until the child fell asleep before leaving. Later, investigators would discover that Vanessa Mack had given him the incorrect information about her ATM card, 
since he had attempted several times without success to retrieve money with it. Murder 7. Betty Bauckham Only a few weeks later, on March 9, 1994, Betty Bauckham, who was the assistant manager at a Bojangles restaurant, never showed up for her shift. Jeffrey Ellis, who was her boss there, attempted several times to reach her without any response. He eventually reached out to her co-workers and then to her mother, none of whom had heard from Betty. The next day, when Betty did not appear at work again, Ellis and a concerned co-worker drove over to her apartment. They knocked on the door and even looked in the windows, but nothing seemed out of the ordinary, so they left. Her boss reached out to Betty's mother again, who still had not heard back from her daughter. So together, they decided to call the police and report her officially missing. Betty Bauckham would be found lying face down on her bed with a towel wrapped around her neck by an officer at the scene. When Dr. Sullivan performed this autopsy, it was apparent that another young woman had suffered from blunt force trauma and strangulation at the hands of the serial perpetrator. This time, however, there were clear signs of a real struggle between the victim and her killer. There were abrasions on her left shoulder, her arms, the upper right part of her chest, her abdomen, and an injury to the head. The autopsy also revealed that blood had built up inside her lungs. There was enlargement of the brain and small hemorrhages in the front of her neck and the lining of the voice box. This victim had done everything possible to stop her murderer, but sadly she could not. Henry Louise Wallace later told investigators how he went to Betty Bauckham's house under the guise of using her phone. They chatted for a while, and when Wallace got ready to leave, he put her in a chokehold to which she then fell to the floor. He demanded her alarm code, her car keys, and the combination to the safe at Bojangles. After 30 minutes of maintaining the chokehold on her, she gave in, and she was released. She asked him why he did that to her, and according to Wallace, he told Betty that he was a sick person and that he had caused harm to many other people. Betty Bauckham returned his admission of guilt by hugging him. She told him that she forgave him, but that he needed help. This triggered a rage inside Wallace, and he slammed Betty to the floor with his hands at her throat, and a struggle ensued. Henry pulled Betty to her feet and told her to take her clothes off. She told him that she had a medical problem, a rash, and that she did not want to undress. He then demanded that she perform oral sex on him. Betty grabbed his penis and started to pull on it and scratch at him. She managed to rip her teeth into his shoulder and leave scratches on his stomach. Henry Louise Wallace then grabbed a towel and strangled her with it until she had almost passed out. He forcibly removed her clothes and raped her, placed the towel back around her neck, and asked her for money. Betty gave Wallace the money she had in her purse, and then he strangled her. He ripped off the gold chain she adorned around her neck, stole her TV and VCR, and took off in her car. Later, he would return to Betty's apartment to ensure that she was in fact dead. While he was there, he carefully and methodically wiped off all his fingerprints from the phone, the doorknob, and the wall where they had fought. He drove around in her vehicle for two days, but then he became paranoid that officers were watching him, so he decided to leave him in the parking lot of her apartment complex. However, before Henry Louise Wallace abandoned the vehicle, he cleaned off the majority of the interior and exterior of the car, but he forgot one important detail. He neglected to wipe down the lid of the trunk. As his murders escalated, his patterns and modus operandi continued to increase in erratic behavior, and some may say he became careless, disorganized, and sloppy. Murder 8. Brandy Henderson Brandy Henderson was a young mother to a 10-month-old little boy, T.W., with her boyfriend, Vernesse Lamar Woods. On the night of March 9, 1994, Brandy would be left alone in her apartment with Henry Louise Wallace to meet her untimely demise. Earlier that day, Wallace had visited the family, told them that he was leaving town for a while, and then left shortly afterwards. Vanessa's boyfriend left for work around 5 o'clock that evening. When he returned around midnight, he found that their apartment's door was unlocked. When he entered, objects had been thrown around the living room area, and the stereo was gone, 
Immediately concerned, he rushed to his infant son's bedroom and turned on the light. Inside, Vernest discovered in horror his child struggling to breathe. A pair of shorts had been wrapped tightly around the little boy's neck, and he was gagging on some kind of white material. He then noticed that Brandy, his girlfriend and the mother of his son, was lying face down on the bed. When Vernest rolled Brandy over, there were towels tied around her neck, and her face had turned blue. He freed her from the towels that were restricting her windpipe and immediately began to perform CPR with the help from a 911 operator. Unfortunately, help arrived too late. The young mother was deceased, and her infant son rushed to the hospital. Although the child, T.W., had stable vitals, his brain functioning had become compromised due to the lack of blood flow from the ligature. Thankfully, within half an hour, the little boy gradually became more alert and engaged with his environment. At least there was some good news for Brandy's family. The autopsy on his mother would reveal evidence of strangulation and minor blunt force trauma, just like the other victims before her. Henry Louise Wallace admitted to having planned Brandy's murder and how he had expected to execute it that morning. But since her boyfriend Verness was there, he abandoned his original plans and murdered Betty Bauckham instead. He would later return to Brandy's apartment to commit her murder that same night. As most of Wallace's killings would unfold, he and the victim hung out for a while, and when he asked for a drink, he took her by surprise, placing her in a chokehold and instructed her to go to the bedroom. When he told her that he was there to rob her and demanded her money, Brandy offered him a Pringles can, which held about $20 of coins inside. Brandy begged Wallace to let her hold and comfort her son, T.W. She held her son close to her chest and turned his small head to the side so he would not see Wallace forcing himself upon her. When T.W. began to cry, they went to the child's bedroom to continue having sex with her son still lying upon her chest. After he assaulted Brandy, Wallace grabbed a towel to wipe everything down. He then rolled up the towel and proceeded to twist it around her neck, strangling her. Her limp body fell to the floor. Wallace picked her up and placed her body on the bed with her child T.W. The child continued to wail. Wallace initially tried to find something to stop him from crying. At first, he attempted to stop his cries with his pacifier and then looked to find him something to drink. He couldn't find anything. So instead, he grabbed a towel and wrapped it tightly around the infant's neck. The little boy T.W. had stopped crying now and laid down next to his mom's dead body. Before leaving the scene of the crime, Wallace stole their stereo and TV, some delivery food, and the Pringles container of coins. Murder 9, Deborah Slaughter. Only three days after the murder of Brandy Henderson, the Taco Bell Strangler of Charlotte would strike again. After arriving in her apartment to return a photo to her daughter, the mother of Deborah Slaughter found the door unlocked. She discovered her daughter's body lying on the floor and called 911. Upon entry to the scene, the officer saw a purse with its contents thrown around the floor. The young woman had a piece of white fabric, which was later identified to be a sock, shoved into her mouth, and a towel had been used to strangle her. There were also multiple stab wounds visible to her chest. The autopsy, a few days later, would reveal the same modus operandi of strangulation and blunt force trauma as his other victims. As in the case of Buddy Bauckham, this victim had also been stabbed. However, there was a noticeable escalation in the excessiveness of violence used, as evidenced by the number of wounds. This woman had been stabbed 38 times, which indicated an increase in the level of rage the perpetrator had inflicted upon his victim. What initially appeared to be a simple visit to Deborah Slaughter's house to partake in some mutual drug use, turned much darker while in Henry Louise Wallace's presence. Deborah had expressed to Henry that she did not have the funds to purchase drugs, since she needed to stretch her cash throughout the week. Once again, like he seemed to choreograph each time, Wallace asked for a drink from his victim. Then without any warning, he ambushed Deborah, taking a towel he had brought along with him and wrapped it tightly around her neck. The victim fell to her knees. 
According to Wallace, Deborah had just put the pieces together and realized that he was the one who had killed the two girls in the neighboring apartment. When Wallace demanded that she take her clothes off and perform oral sex on him, she told him that she does not do that and that he may as well just kill her. As he tightened the grip upon the towel, he asked if she wanted to change her mind, but Deborah refused. He then raped her. And when he remembered that she always carried a knife on her, he asked her to empty out her purse. Wallace kicked the knife to the side and demanded she give him everything inside her wallet. Deborah struck out at him and screamed out for help. He squeezed the towel tighter around her neck until she collapsed to the floor and began kicking at him. Wallace brought another towel back from the bathroom and tied it to the one around her neck. Then he picked up her knife and stabbed Deborah in the stomach repeatedly. He then went to her sink, rinsed the blood and his fingerprints off of the knife, and laid it with the rest of the items from her purse on the floor. Henry Louise Wallace left to purchase some crack cocaine, and then returned to Deborah's apartment and smoked it there. Now, prior to Betty Bauckham's body being discovered, Detectives have begun to see common threads between the homicide victims Brandy Henderson and Vanessa Mack. Both victims were young, African-American females from working middle-class backgrounds, and there had been no evidence of forced entry. This indicated that they most likely knew their perpetrator and possibly even trusted the person. Strangulation by the use of ligatures were found to be the case of both deaths. At last, on March 10, 1994, investigators would come together to collaborate on these seemingly related murders. It was then that they realized there was another victim, Betty Bauckham, whose murder shared similar traits to Max and to Henderson's. When the families and friends of the victims were asked by homicide investigators who would have been welcomed into these ladies' apartments, they spotted a common name. When detectives joined forces with one another on who all the victims knew, a light shone upon their investigation. They had attempted, without success, to string together the murders by known relationships to each other. But none of the women appeared to be directly acquainted. Instead, through shared information by the police, it was discovered that there was an individual all victims had in common. Henry Louise Wallace Two of his victims, Shauna Hawk and Audrey Spain, had worked at Taco Bell at different times under the same manager, who had been Henry Louis Wallace. Michelle Stenson was a regular customer at Taco Bell and would often make small talk with him. Valencia Jumper was known to be friends with Henry's younger sister, Yvonne. Vanessa Mack was one of his former girlfriend's sisters. Betty Bauckham was a friend of his girlfriend, Sadie McKnight. Brandy Henderson was the girlfriend of one of Henry's friends. Vanessa Lamar Woods, who informed the police that Henry often came to visit with Brandy while he was gone to work. Caroline Love was his girlfriend's roommate. Henry Louise Wallace's girlfriend, Sadie McKnight, was initially very shocked and in disbelief over Henry being the suspected serial killer. However, once she put the pieces together, she saw how this could be true. Henry had been taking trophies from his victims, like rings, bracelets, and necklaces, and giving them to his girlfriend, Sadie. It dawned on her that she had been wearing jewelry from some of her murdered girlfriends. When Betty Bauckham's vehicle was located on March 11, 1994, a palm print was found on the trunk lid. Since Henry Louise Wallace was now deemed a viable suspect, they compared his fingerprints to the palm print, and the crime lab found a match. There was already an outstanding warrant for a larceny charge on him, so the police began an extensive search for Henry Louise Wallace. When Deborah Slaughter's body was found on March 12th, the investigators learned that the crime scene exhibited similar elements to all three of their other victims. That same evening, the perpetrator would be arrested on his outstanding warrant. Investigators finally had their primary suspect in custody. Henry Louise Wallace stood six feet tall, weighed around 200 pounds, and had a pleasant, round, smiling face adorned in glasses. So he was not an intimidating character. He was known for his intelligence, being kind and helpful, and had what one may refer to as a big teddy bear appeal. 
Investigators were taken back by how calm, polite, intelligent, kind, and non-threatening this suspected serial killer was. Investigator Tony Rice of Charlotte-Mecklenburg PD conducted the interview with Wallace, whom he apparently already knew. When Detective Rice inquired about Wallace's girlfriend, Sadie McKnight, Henry became upset and emotional and begged to be able to see her. Detective Rice told him that he would see what he could do if Wallace would talk to him. He then prayed with Wallace, who cried during the prayer and afterwards wrote down all of the women he had murdered. Over 10 hours of recorded confessions of the homicides Henry Louise Wallace committed, he would provide to the police, including very specific details of each case. The police informed him during questioning that they had in their possession evidence which directly connected him to the scene of the crimes. The police had images of him on the ATM camera attempting to use Vanessa Mack's ATM card and the palm print he left behind on the trunk lid of Betty Bauckham's vehicle. Henry Louise Wallace, within a few hours, confessed to killing Love, Hawk, Spain, Jumper, Stenson, Mack, Bauckham, Henderson, and Slaughter. With the goal of preserving Henry Louise Wallace's life, the defense counsel was formidable in their approach of building a case around his mental state. In particular, Colonel Robert Key Ressler from the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit who coined the term serial killer, and Dr. Ann W. Burgess, a specialist in psychosocial development, testified to the psychological state of the defendant. Colonel Ressler testified that he believed Henry Louise Wallace's use of organizational and disorganizational elements of the crimes were indicative of his being psychologically unstable. Dr. Burgess testified that Wallace was incapable of deciphering reality from fantasy, which she believed was due to his suffering from a mental health condition. However, all of his defense counsel's efforts were in vain. On January 7, 1997, all 12 jurors would find the defendant, Henry Louise Wallace, guilty on all nine counts of first-degree murder based on the malice, premeditation, and deliberation of each crime. He was also found guilty on several other charges, including, but not exclusive to, first-degree rape, robbery with a dangerous weapon, and the attempted murder for the strangulation of T.W., Brandy Henderson's 10-month-old son. Three weeks later, the jury made a recommendation of the death penalty for his sentence, which the judge agreed to. He sentenced Henry Louise Wallace to nine death sentences for each woman's life he had taken. Now, under our Constitution, it is an absolutely mandatory right that any person given a sentence of the death penalty is automatically given the right to appeal. After he was convicted, Henry Louise Wallace argued that his constitutional rights of due process protected under the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments and his rights to notice and trial by jury under the Sixth had all been violated. The appellant, that is the defendant in the appellate case, argued that the short-form indictments violated these amendments since they did not differentiate between first-degree offenses and that of second-degree. The Supreme Court of North Carolina disagreed with this and pointed out that the nine indictments for murder held the same language, which was modified to fit each specific murder he committed with different dates of the homicides and different names of his victims. The jury found, as described by first-degree homicide, that Henry Louise Wallace had unlawfully, willfully, and feloniously, and of malice aforethought, killed and murdered each individual victim. The appellant also attempted to argue that his rights were violated by the pre-trial publicity, which created prejudice and provoked rage in the community, who represented the jury members. Henry Louise Wallace requested that the trial court change venue on a minimum of three different occasions, all which he was denied. The appellant further claimed that his rights were violated since he was manipulated and tricked into giving a confession since the investigator told him that he could see his girlfriend Sadie McKnight if he talked to him about the crimes. 
This argument was also denied by the Supreme Court of North Carolina, who disagreed that any of his rights during interrogation had been violated. He had been read his Miranda rights, was given food and drink, the opportunity to use the restroom, and was permitted several hours to sleep before seeing the judge. His attempts to overturn his conviction, and thus his death penalty sentence, had been unsuccessful. Although met with great resistance, Henry Louise Wallace would eventually confess to the first girl he murdered back in his hometown of Barnwell, South Carolina, in 1990. Tashonda Bethay was only 17 years old when Wallace took her life on March 18, 1990. Wallace was driving down the road when he spotted a young girl walking. He confessed to how he picked her up, took her to an isolated spot in the woods, raped her at gunpoint, strangled her, cut her wrists and throat, and then disposed of her body in the pond. He also confessed to murdering a sex worker named Sharon Nance in Charlotte, North Carolina in May 1992. But very few details around this case from any legitimate resource could be uncovered. Although never proven to be true, Henry Louise Wallace claims to have killed women all over the world while on his different ports of call in the Navy. Authorities estimate that the accurate number of his victims is close to 20. With the only death row unit in North Carolina being in Raleigh, Wallace now calls Central Prison his forever home. Although it should be shocking to hear, we all know how murderers and rapists have their fangirls and fanboys. And while serving his sentence in Central Prison, Henry Louise Wallace found himself a new bride. In 1998, a former prison nurse named Rebecca Torrijas, whom he had met in 1994, shortly after being arrested for the murders, married him in a small room next to the death chamber. Although they have never been allowed to consummate their marriage, Rebecca frequently visits him. Now, this particular case has found itself under deep scrutiny for its investigation, from the perspective of both shoddy police work and law enforcement's neglect for a marginalized group of victims. This investigation was under heavy criticism by both the media and the public. Personally, I think that it would be too easy to blame law enforcement for not catching the serial killer sooner due to a racist police force or neglectful investigators for ignoring the obvious connections the victim shared and the clear patterns of the perpetrator. Why, you may wonder, do I say this? Because the reality of the circumstances of the case are much more complicated than this and should not be pushed aside. With only seven investigators spread thin across an ever-growing metropolitan city, the police force were not well-versed in serial killers, complex modus operandi, and were not equipped to handle either of them. Each murder had been treated as an isolated crime with a different investigator on each one. The investigators did not communicate with one another on the cases, so any potential similarities between them were not known, since the details of each killings were not being shared. Another main reason why police failed to see any connections, even after finally getting the FBI involved, is that the modus operandi of Henry Reese Wallace did not fit within the profile of male serial killers. Studies on the differences between female serial killers versus male serial killers have revealed a hunter versus gatherer approach. Men who are serial murderers almost always follow the hunter profile. They watch from afar, stalk and capture their prey, who are predominantly strangers, not people within their personal life or whom they know very well. Female serial killers, on the other hand, are gatherers. They lure in those closest around them, manipulate, and methodically murder their victims. Through this lens, one can understand how the crimes would not have been immediately linked, because his victims were his close friends, acquaintances, and even co-workers. Male serial killers don't typically kill people within their immediate circle. This is an extremely rare modus operandi for a male serial killer. In addition, especially at this time, it was unheard of for an African-American man to be a serial killer. They had all up to this point believed to have been white men. Statistics have shown, although the results of studies vary, 
the serial killers who are African-American represent somewhere between 13 to 20 percent. This demographic of a serial murder is much higher than the media acknowledges them to be, which undoubtedly has an impact upon the perception and actions of law enforcement. In a study done in 2004, there were at least 130 African-American serial killers who were identified within the past century. Yet very little of them are mentioned in the media, sources of literature and film, both fictional and documentary, and they are rarely the focus of research or case studies. Henry Lee Louise Wallace's pattern of hunting was wildly different from the traditional profile of a male serial killer who typically prey upon strangers and choose their victims away from their personal intimate social circles. In the case of Henry Louise Wallace, he directly knew all of his victims, some even intimately, and they all lived and worked with only a few miles of where he lived. It is also important to discuss and view this case through a lens of criminology, in particular, the life experiences, motivations, and triggers of the perpetrator. In no way does an abusive or depraved childhood condone the actions of anyone who victimizes others. It can, though, help to shine a light upon their upbringing, their mental state, and life circumstances, which can provoke a perpetrator's offenses. Understanding how a person's background and the chapters in their life have helped to shape and influence them and their crimes is extremely important to help identify their character traits, warning signs, and behavior. Extensive research has revealed that abuse, neglect, and an unhealthy exposure to sex and or violence are common factors shared across serial killers. Henry Louise Wallace was born on November 4, 1965 in Barnwell, South Carolina. He grew up in exceptionally poor living conditions. His mother was bitter and tainted by her own life's sorrows and disappointments, and she exerted her own pain and anger onto Henry and his older sister Yvonne. Henry's mother had given birth to and raised both of her children on her own since their father was a married high school teacher. Their home had no running water or electricity. Their source of water, including that for drinking, came from a pump well. Their restroom was an old watershed with chamber pots, which Henry was given the chore of disposing of daily. Along with his mother, he and his sister also lived with his grandmother and great-grandmother. The women in Henry's life were harsh disciplinarians. They beat, berated, and chastised Henry as a toddler when he had an accident in his pants, which left him petrified. This often led to him having more accidents and then doing his best to cover it up. Henry and his sister Yvonne both were spanked by switches, which their mother forced them to select. And on her really bad days, she forced them to beat one another with the whips. According to a pre-sentence investigation report, Henry claimed that his mother had sex with various men in the house in front of him. She also exposed him to explicit pornography and true crime detective magazines, which some psychiatrists believe had a negative impact upon his psychological health and sexual views towards women. Henry's older years were pretty much normal and uneventful. He achieved mediocre grades, but was well-liked by both teachers and his fellow classmates. He had been forbidden by his mother to play football, so he became a cheerleader instead. At six feet tall, Henry could have been the brunt of many jokes out on the field, but the opposite was said to be true. The entire school praised him for his fun attitude and imagination, and the cheerleaders praised him for how polite and positive he was. After graduation, higher education did not fare well for him, so he found his way into the radio studio, naming himself the Night Rider at a local radio station. Apparently, he was very well received, and it may have been the beginning of a positive career path for Henry, but he was fired for stealing CDs. This pattern of theft and deceit would increasingly become more of a staple in Henry Louise Wallace's life. Shortly after, in 1984, Henry Louise Wallace decided to enlist in the U.S. Navy and would be active for eight years. 
Interestingly enough, he had found his place in the military, being called an outstanding seaman by his fellow crewmen. They said he was obedient, compliant, diligent with his duties, and was highly intelligent. However, in 1992, his success screeched to a halt when he was caught breaking and entering near the naval base. He was allowed to leave an honorable discharge, despite this fact, since prior to this incident, he had had a perfect record. During this time, he had also fallen in love with and married a girl who had a child from a previous relationship, which he had embraced as his own. Henry was devastated when his wife Moretta left him once he was discharged from the Navy. His life was piling up with disappointments, sorrow, failures, and pain. Left with few options, Henry moved to Charlotte, North Carolina to live with his mother and sister. He turned to drugs more and more as a release from his pain of losing Moretta and wasting a promising future in the Navy. It is noted in studies how Henry Louise Wallace fell apart in his modus operandi, becoming increasingly more disorganized and erratic, which led to his being caught. The roots of this have been linked to the escalation of his addiction to crack cocaine. His dependence on narcotics caused him to be less methodical and not as careful when cleaning up the crime scene to conceal his presence, as he had done so in his earlier crimes. Unlike some of his first victims, whom he would bathe or redress, in his later killings, he was sloppy, neglectful, and left evidence behind, which would link him to the homicides. It was also observed that as his murders continued, he chose women who were larger, which, according to Wallace, made them more troublesome since they were stronger and resisted harder. This likely impacted his methods and approach in taking their lives, which led to more brutality being implemented in their deaths. Before Henry Louise Wallace was caught, he murdered three women within 72 hours, which is an almost unheard of time frame for serial killers to accumulate victims. These murders were conducted in a way of a spree killer instead of a calculated serial killer. This realistically increased the likelihood of his being found. To make himself even more prone to being captured by law enforcement, two of these three victims lived within the same apartment complex. Henry's drug use seemed to have pushed his rage towards women that had been brewing inside him for years over the edge. A murderer who had once been extremely organized, diligent, and highly methodical had become an unhinged maniac who left evidence everywhere. Henry Louise Wallace was either so arrogant that he thought he would never get caught, or he was so consumed by his hatred of women that his actions could no longer be applied with any rationale or calculation. Wallace also said that when he was a young man, he was sexually used by several women in his community. Psychiatrists believed that he was so severely desperate for love and affection that he accepted this exploitation since it was a form of attention. It seems pretty obvious that except for his relationship with his sister, there was nothing positive or nurturing about the women who had dictated Henry's life. Wallace was diagnosed with sexual disorders, depression, and a personality disorder. He admitted to a psychologist that he committed upwards of 100 rapes during his lifetime. Please note that I am not a licensed therapist or psychiatrist, but my degree and the coursework I took in sex crimes exposed me to a lot of pertinent information in this area. Research has shown that rapists more often than not come from backgrounds of abuse, both emotionally and physically, and violence is present within their home versus other kinds of sex offenders. Crime reports have also indicated that they commit a wide variety of criminal acts, in particular thefts and robbery, which are often connected to their drug use. A famous typology of rapists is found in Groth's 1979 study, which identified three kinds of rapists. Groth's theory is that rape contains three primary elements, being power, anger, and sexuality, which determine the three distinct kinds. 
power rapists use sexuality as a way to communicate possession, power, and control. Anger rapists use sexuality in a hostile manner, and sadistic rapists often use both violence and sex in a way that the combination of the two is what turns them on. Now, of these primary typologies for rapists, based on how Henry Louise Wallace described his own motivation, in addition to the circumstances of each crime, it appears that Wallace fits within anger retaliatory. Also referred to as the revenge rapist, this type of individual utilizes rape as a way to convey their hostility towards women. They view rape through the lens of justified punishment and use it to calm their rage. This type of sex crime offender tends to be physically violent and is considered the most rare of the three typologies. It was suggested by Henry's psychiatrist that the abuse he suffered from women his whole life distorted his psychological development to the extent that he justified his vicious acts against them with the belief that he was their victim. It has been reported that Henry even referred to himself more than once as a male avenger who had righted the wrongs done to him and other men by women. Henry Louise Wallace said that he was driven primarily by sexual gratification, power, and control. Although he was a serial killer, he was first a rapist, and for this reason, a criminological profile of the kind of rapist he is, is crucial to understand his motivations, and how in his own mind, Henry Louise Wallace justified his behavior. At the end of the day, Henry Louise Wallace is completely responsible for his own actions, but all of these variables, which helped manifest his rage and trigger his violent and homicidal behavior, should not be ignored. No one except Wallace knows if something or someone could have potentially shifted the direction of his violent path. He placed a veil over countless people's eyes in his life and tricked them into believing he was someone they could trust. But from what we know of him as a child and as a young man, he was that type of person. Henry was known for being kind, intelligent, and gentle with others. But things changed with his drug abuse, depression, and rage, taking him into the darkest depths of humanity. In his own words, he said there was a good Henry and a bad Henry. It is critical that we as a society pay attention to signs of someone who is suffering from depression, from drug addiction, and who has patterns of violence and criminal activity throughout their life. It should be a community requirement that if we see or even think that a child is suffering from violence and abuse in their home, that we take action to ensure that child is safe in spirit, mind, and body. No one thing or one person is to blame for these tragic deaths except for the literal hands of Henry Louise Wallace. But I can't help but think this person could have been saved from their darkness. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate your being here with me, and I am beyond thrilled to be your host. Please feel free to let me know your thoughts and feelings on this perpetrator and this case. What do you believe led to so many women being murdered before the perpetrator was caught? Was it that law enforcement was incompetent and inexperienced? Were these young African-American women going missing and murdered not being prioritized? Or was it the complicated and uncommon modus operandi of Henry Louise Wallace that led to all of these women being killed before he could be discovered and stopped? Until next time, stay safe and watch out for shades of murder unfolding in the streets, next door, and especially inside your own home. Alita Dogma's Shades of Murder was created, written, researched, and edited by Alita Dogma. Music composed by Ashok Danilian, courtesy of Pixabay. <laughs>